welcome to emergencymedicinecases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. On this episode, number 13, called Killer Coma Cases, we've got with us Dr. Brian Steinhardt and Dr. David Carr. Dr. Steinhardt is an emergency physician at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. He's certified in emergency medicine by the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada and the American Board of Emergency Medicine. Dr. Carr is an emergency physician at the University Health Network in Toronto and an assistant professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine, Division of Emergency Medicine at the U of T. He serves as the Assistant Director of Education at UHN, and in 2009, he was the recipient of both undergraduate and postgraduate clinical teaching awards. We've all been there. Patient comes crashing into the resuscitation room with the GCS of six, picked up off the street or found down in their apartment, and you got zero history. All you got is some vitals and a really sick patient. And so your veterinary medicine skills start to kick in. You do your usual ABCs, and you've gathered clues, but nothing seems to fit into a nice, tight package. You're feeling pretty good about stabilizing the patient, but you're still searching for that data point that'll help you clinch the diagnosis. You're thinking, what the heck am I missing? You cover the patient for sepsis with some ceftriaxone, you order up your confusogram, and hope that you'll come up with something you can hang your hat on. Finally, the blood work comes back, and everything is out of whack. So now you're scratching your head. You're digging deep into your brain for an answer. And it goes on. Yes, we've all been in this situation before. But don't fret. By the end of this episode, with the help of Dr. Steinhardt from St. Mike's, the EM doc who has probably assessed and diagnosed more altered patients than anyone in Canada, and Dr. Carr from Toronto General, or UHN, one of Canada's best EM speakers whose boundless energy, enthusiasm, and razor-sharp insight is second to none, You'll face the next comatose patient with a new confidence and vigor that'll remind you why you became an EM doc in the first place. I know that was a little bit cheesy, but really... These two docs are amazing clinicians and great speakers, and I'm really psyched for this one because this time we're going to do it a little bit differently. We're going to go through the cases in a lot more detail than we usually do, and we're going to come out with some awesome clinical pearls. Welcome, Dr. Steinhardt, and welcome, Dr. Carr. Thank you very much. I'm glad you guys could make it. All right, so let's jump right into the first case. The first case is that of a 61-year-old male who's brought in by car with his family with a chief complaint of decreased level of awareness. He was just discharged from the Toronto Rehab Institute two days prior. His past medical history includes a V-fib arrest a few months prior, diabetes, and glaucoma. He takes metformin, ASA, Plavix, Pantaloc, Metoprolol, and Timolol drops, and was just started on Celexa six days ago, as well as Trazodone and Aricept two weeks ago. The family reports that he was well until the prior evening when he wasn't feeling quite himself and went to bed early. At 6 a.m. that morning, he wasn't responding at all, and then again at 1 p.m., he wasn't responding, so they called 911. On exam in the ED, his GCS was fluctuating between 3 and 6, with occasional vocalizations and facial grimaces. Aside from a slightly elevated blood pressure of 154 of 90, his vital signs were normal. His blood sugar was 7.2, which for the American listeners, that's normal. 
chest cardiovascular and abdominal examinations were normal. His neuro exam revealed mid-sized pupils that were equal and reactive, no focal abnormalities, and normal tone. So, Dr. Carr, before we jump into the details of this case, could you just give us a general approach that you have to the comatose patient in the emergency department? Sure, Dr. Hellman. I think the comatose patient is a great challenge. We often think of coma like brain failure, and it's something that's very difficult to decipher the cause. I think the most basic way of dividing out the cause is to think in terms of structural or metabolic. When you think about coma, two things have to happen to cause coma. Either you have to have a bilateral cerebral hemisphere insult, or you have to have brain stem dysfunction through the reticular activating system. So you need quite a large process to cause someone to be comatose. What our challenge in the emergency room is to find out which of those processes are happening. Is this a brainstem problem or is this a metabolic problem? When you divide things like being structural metabolic, structural pretty much means brainstem and metabolic pretty much means bilateral cerebral hemisphere. That's kind of the basic thing. There are lots of mnemonics. Sometimes people will use things like AEIOU tips or other mnemonics to determine the differential diagnosis of coma. But one must realize that this can be almost anything, that the differential is huge, but you have to have an organized approach. You have to kind of think about coma in terms of a first principle priorities. First, thinking about the easiest and most reversible cause of coma. We all hate to miss things like hypoglycemia or hypoxia or hypercapnia or is over-narcotized. So I think these are very simple things that don't require a lot of brain activity to make that diagnosis, but they should be thought about right when you entertain the diagnosis of coma. I should add that classically we're taught to suggest structural if there's focal findings and metabolic toxic if there aren't any focal findings. That's usually the case, but... Certainly, there are instances when focal neurologic deficits present metabolic uh, toxic and vice versa. There could be a generalized coma state with loss of consciousness and there's a structural problem. So usually, but not always, can you easily classify them into one or the other. Right. We've all been there where we forget to check the glucose and the patient looks like they have a stroke and they're about to go off to the CAT scanner. You suddenly realize, oops. I forgot to check the glucose, and it turns out that their presentation that looks exactly like a focal stroke is actually just hypoglycemia. Right, or and a structural problem can lead to, for example, a seizure in, their, in a post-ictal state with, with non-focal findings at that point and can be misleading in that regard. In this case, the patient has pretty much normal vital signs, yet is in a coma. Can you just give us your thoughts about what's going through your mind in a patient who presents in coma but with perfectly normal vital signs? It's a challenge with normal vital signs. The vital signs give you tremendous clues to what's going on. A high respiratory rate might tell you this person's acidotic and might give you the clue. Their oxygen saturation might tell you there's a respiratory problem. When there's normal vitals, you have to think about other causes that are not going to be focal in that nature. I think that normal vitals, you're thinking possibly a structural problem. That might give you your first clue that this is something that's structural because you know if you have a subdural hemorrhage, if you have a, a stroke or something without increasing intracranial pressure, you should have a, a maintenance of your vitals. The other thing you have to think about is in the comatose patient in the right setting is 
open up the um, umbrella of toxicologic ingestions, the sedative hypnotic toxidrome or other toxidromes that aren't as vitally engaging are often things to think about. GHB, sometimes if you have a beta blocker that would have a lot of CNS effect and you have a high baseline with heart rate and blood pressure, you might not be that blocked, yet you might have a lot of CNS effects. So the other thing is the onset of the coma and the rapidity. In this case, we're not exactly sure uh, how rapid the onset was. The patient was seen at six o'clock the night before and then was seen again the next morning. So it's hard to tell when the precipitation occurred, but it's amazing how toxic metabolic uh, causes can have a very precipitous presentation that a patient otherwise well and of normal cognition and mental status within a very short period of time just slips over the edge. Perhaps they're compensating and then they they hit that threshold, whatever the etiology, uh, electrolyte disturbance, sepsis, and then they crash and they go over the edge. And likewise, it can be a very insidious ongoing slow process that ultimately takes the patient to the emergency department. So uh, onset is important, but not totally leading to one cause classification or another. So getting back to the case, you start getting some test results back. The ECG comes back and it's normal. The CAT scan comes back and it's read as normal. The routine blood work plus troponins, LFTs, calcimag FOS, the talk screen, they're all within normal limits. Uh, The urine is normal and the chest x-ray is normal. So now you've got a patient with essentially normal vital signs and a normal initial workup. How does this narrow your differential diagnosis? What are your thoughts at this point? You always have to think about what you're missing with that plain CT. What is not imaged well with a non-contrast CT of the head? And that's the posterior fossa. So I think one needs to consider whenever you have the comatose patient, it's prudent for the emergency doctor to order the right neuroimaging modality in order to find the differential and to expand it because time is brain. And there's other things in the brainstem, such as a locked-in syndrome or a a top-of-the-basilar artery syndrome, stuff that you won't catch on CT unless you see a clot or hyperdense basilar artery on on a non-contrast CT that you'll need more advanced imaging. I see. Uh, Yeah. So lock-in syndrome is the one where they get a brainstem infarct and they're alert, yet they can't move. For the most part, they have eye movements, so they can blink and they have vertical eye movements. So they're able to communicate through blinking, but it's a great example in the sense that maybe the only thing that would save this person could be interventional radiology, and that might be their only chance. And you might miss that diagnosis on CT, and if you had a suspicion of that, by seeing some eye blinking or stuff like that, you might go on to a further imaging like an MRA or a CTA to try to define that. Mm-hmm. Not a common scenario. Thank- thankfully, it's, it's, it's horrible to, to uh, witness. Typically, there's a huge autonomic surge with these individuals, not just your run-of-the-mill comatose patient lying there on, on the bed. Uh, there's, there's huge diaphoresis. There's massive shifts in blood pressure and and heart rate and and you'll find upgoing toes myoclonus these are two simple signs that everyone should uh, try and elicit in every patient who's comatose nyd the last one i saw was uh, a young individual who 
presented with alternating uh, brainstem findings. So right-sided uh, brainstem findings alternating with left-sided brainstem findings. Unfortunately, uh, the uh, clinicians didn't pick up that this, the, this presentation is pathic mnemonic for vertebral basilar dissection. And then uh, when, when this was finally addressed, he had the coup de grace, the locked-in syndrome. Let's go back to the case. The patient was referred to medicine, and the charge nurse actually inquired about the differential diagnosis of the patient. She went to the bedside, and she suddenly declared, this patient is in status. She asked the doc, did you give the patient any anti-seizure meds? And then a decision was made to give two milligrams of IV lorazepam. About two minutes later, the patient started to wake up, and he returned pretty much back to baseline a few minutes later. A presumptive diagnosis of non-convulsive status epilepticus was made. An MRI of the brain was done and showed evidence of anoxic brain injury, and an EEG showed no ongoing seizure activity, but did show non-epileptiform encephalopathy. So, Dr. Carr, can you just tell us a little bit about what non-convulsive status epilepticus is, or what we'll call for now on NCS? How we think about non-convulsive status epilepticus, looking for a formal definition like status epilepticus is seizure activity for at least 30 minutes, but without the major motor signs. And often there's a change in behavior or cognition. And I think you have to think about this in terms of its wide range of presentations. It can be extremely subtle. Before I saw this case, I thought about non-convulsive in the patient I snowed with benzos and dilantin who didn't wake up and I was saying, gee, they were seizing before, why aren't they waking up? I'm going to ask neurology to do an EEG. Those people, when we see the seizures first, it might be easier to make that diagnosis. It's the patient who you don't know has seized, doesn't have a seizure disorder, where it can be challenging. And I think getting a sense of their picture their signs and their collections of symptoms, their history from their, their past medical history and from family members is super important. This is very underrecognized, especially in elderly patients and with patients with histories of seizure disorders. What we know about this is that this is very common. About 10 to 30% of all status is non-convulsive status. And if you look at patients who present to the emergency department and later have a diagnosis of non-convulsive status, they are often missed and often regarded as a psychogenic cause of their coma. I, I remember my first case that I diagnosed of non-convulsive status. First of all, let me, let me just clarify. The old way of nomenclature and categorization of this was the psychomotor seizure, the temporal lobe seizure that then morphed into complex partial seizures. This is now a subset of NCSE for those old timers like me. My first case was an elderly lady who was brought in by stretcher and just acting weird. She was conscious. She was very vague. She, at first I thought she was purposely non-cooperative and she kept poking at her button on her blouse and, and kind of flicking her, her button in a rhythmic way. And so I came over thinking this is, this is very weird. This patient is obviously got some personality disorders and not cooperative. And it's only when her sister came in from registering the patient and, and told us that, you know, she's having a complex partial seizure and you better treat it, that 
I finally clued in. Of course, I took full credit for diagnosing it. And as with Dr. Carr's patient, a stunning reversal of cognitive findings. The sweetest lady in the world once you gave her one milligram of Ativan. Let me just review the types of presentations that patients with non-convulsive status have. So first, it's any patient really you should consider with an altered mental status you should consider this diagnosis, but especially those with a known history of seizure disorder, a history of any recent seizure, or a patient who you've worked up and there's no obvious structural or metabolic or traumatic cause. The last one there is a patient who presents like a psychiatric patient. Time and again, I see the psychiatric patient who is just not fitting any classic dsm 4 classification. This individual is not behaving in, in a scripted uh, psychiatric way and may or may not have these automatisms. There, there seems to be fluctuance in cognitive awareness. I'm not saying from coma GCS 3 to 15, but just subtleties where they're not always responding to you and they may have some twitching in their face or they may have some Rhythmic movements of their mouth. Is this a drug side effect? Is this some sort of partial complex seizure where you don't want to immediately label them psychiatric and you really don't want to miss a partial complex seizure that's going on? I think it's a great point, Dr. Steiner. And why that group is very vulnerable is that it's the medications they're on. So I like to think about non convulsive. The other group is the elderly person who maybe their dosette's wrong, they stop taking their benzo that they were taking at bedtime, they're having some withdrawal that puts them into seizures, which is in a non-convulsive form, much akin to the psych patient that Dr. Starnard's describing, these people are on dirty meds, and often these meds can cause seizures if taken in, in an abundance or in a withdrawal state. So they're vulnerable to suffer from the deleterious effects of non-convulsive status. Great. Okay, so Elderly who have stopped taking their benzos, psych patients with or without psychiatric medication, seizure patients. Okay, so those are the kinds of patients. And, and Dr. Steinhardt, you gave some great descriptions there about the subtle signs to look out for. Can you just review for us specifically what the subtle signs of non-convulsive status are? The way I frame this is altered mental status plus automatisms equals non-convulsive status. What are the automatisms that Dr. Steinert's referring to? Eye blinking, twitching, as Dr. Steinert mentioned, the grabbing at things, doing weird things with their hands, whether that's in an agitation form, in a form of an aggression, whether they're lethargic, they might have funny eye movements. Their eyes might be shifting back and forward. I think one of the hallmarks of the coma exam is looking at the eyes because it gives you so many clues. And in this group, for sure, that's another area where you'll get a lot of clues. Facial grimacing. The nurse who told me about this patient, so I said to her, I said, why do you think this person's in status? She said, because I couldn't take his temperature. I'm like, what are you talking about? She said, I tried to put the probe in his mouth and he bit down. So he was clenching down with his teeth in an, one could say, this guy's a pain in the butt, he won't let me take his temp, and often be put in that category as Dr. Steinitz were referring to, or this guy's got some automatism clenching down. Yeah, he was doing the suckling reflex of a neonate. Right. I just want to bring up the point of the importance of doing a good neuro exam before you might be thinking about intubating and paralyzing this patient. 
you know, the patient's GCS is between three and six, you, you may well elect to intubate this patient. And so it's just very important to be looking for these subtle signs and clues before you paralyze them, and then you've lost your chance. It's too late, she's gone. It's too late, my baby's gone. While generalized convulsive status epilepticus is obviously something we want to act on quickly because it causes badness like hypoxic brain injury, cardiac dysrhythmias, rhabdo, hyperthermia, pulmonary edema, it's got a very high mortality rate. How does non-convulsive status compare in terms of morbidity and mortality to generalized convulsive status? It's difficult to give statistics. What we know is the EEG findings in non-convulsive status have less neuronal activity. We don't think about this as the same way we do with convulsive status, where this guy was in non-convulsive status arguably for 18, 24 hours. If he was in status, one would have expect his brain to have suffered major effects so that when he had his benzo, he wouldn't have woken up and asked my name. What we do know is that there doesn't appear to be the same damage but what we want to do is prevent these people from the complications. And the complications are, one, are they going to progress into a convulsive status epilepticus? So you're in non-convulsive status, which maybe is a more benign entity. If we don't treat this person, maybe they progress to status, which is more dangerous, or some of the sequelae of not protecting your airway. So you aspirate. There's also maybe some precipitant cause that goes unrecognized. So I like to think about non-convulsive as not the sort of neuronal damage you'll do by being in a seizure activity, but what you're going to do by not recognizing non-convulsive and what are the sequelae of that. So now that we know that non-convulsive carries definitely some morbidity and mortality, maybe not as much as generalized convulsive, we know that the definitive diagnosis is made with an EEG. Now, most of us have a lot of trouble getting an EEG in the emergency department. In fact, I've never seen an EEG done in the emergency department in my practice. Considering that the rate of undiagnosed non-convulsive is very high, it's you know around 10% in the emergency department, up to about 35% in the ICU, should we be fighting for getting an EEG for these patients? So I want to clarify once again, there's two ends of the spectrum with this process NCSE. On the one extreme is the comatose patient who may or may not have had a, a seizure, who's NYD, who's coming into hospital, going to ICU one way or another. And then there's the little old lady on the other end of the spectrum who may even walk in under their own steam with caregivers or family members saying, you know, there's something wrong. This individual is just not acting right. So, so there are these two spectrums. One's going to be hospitalized in ICU, and that's where EEG technicians live. This is recognized as an entity by the intensivists and the neurologists, and they know of this entity. I think we're more concerned about the walk-in uh, individual and, and labeling and mislabeling then. So yes, any listener here knows of the difficulty in getting an EEG even during, quote, business hours, Monday to Friday, 9 to 4, 
in that there needs to be a paradigm shift and some policy ironed out between the eMERGE and, and the neurology people and the technicians. The other way of approaching it is giving them benzo if you suspect the diagnosis, and then if you reverse it, then that pretty much clinches the diagnosis. It's diagnostic and therapeutic. In the world that most of us practice in, in, especially in the comatose patient, especially if you're thinking about what sedative to give to before you intubate this person, think about a benzodiazepine. It's amazing when you go to sedate someone with a benzo before you intubate them and they wake up. Sometimes we can't wait for that EEG. And if there are logistical pathways in place that make it difficult for you to ascertain an EEG, a trial of, of lorazepam or the benzodiazepine that you like best, I think is a prudent way of approaching that patient. So we've talked a lot now about non-convulsive status. Let's just talk about seizures in general for a little bit. Generally, when someone has a seizure, we're giving benzos, maybe Dilantin, and we're going down the whole algorithm. If they keep on seizing, we go down the whole algorithm of, of generalized status. Are there any diagnoses that we should be thinking about where it requires a different treatment right away in the emergency department? Sure. I think the pearls that come up in the emergency medicine board review courses or when the residents are being pimped is one. One pearl is Dilantin is not a good toxicologic seizure medication. It has antiarrhythmic effects, which often patients who overdose on certain classes of drugs like sympathomimetics won't benefit from if they're seizing. We know that it's not a good drug for alcoholics, yet it's often the medication that these patients are on. So I like to think about removing Dilantin for our toxicologic seizures. And then the one pearl that comes on, there's probably a billion people in the world who are TB skin carriers, is the group that's on INH, who has refractory seizures to isoniazide and thinking about using pyridoxine. The other important group is to think about the pregnant patient and more importantly, the postpartum patient. We know a lot of eclampsia occurs postpartum. It's amazing what people will tell you on their past medical history. People will come into the emerge and not tell you they just had a baby two weeks ago. And what's crazy about this and what's scary about this is someone comes in with a blood pressure 140 over 90. That doesn't even register in any of our eyes. That usually means the patient's been in the waiting room for an hour and a half. We don't even think about that as hypertensive. But if I have a postpartum patient, she's 150 over 90, I'm starting to really worry about this is a postpartum preeclampsia. She's at risk of developing eclampsia, going on to seize, thinking about, you know, if she has headaches or other signs that suggest she's in severe preeclampsia, starting her on magnesium. The other subset of patients that we, you have to worry about who are seizing and, and you have to go beyond the ABCs and anti-epileptics is the carbon monoxide patient. So what, what are the clues to carbon monoxide poisoning? Well, in temperate climates, it's typically the winter time of year when furnaces are being used. And the last one we had was a squirrel had fallen down the chimney and uh, impacted and the family of four were all affected. So therein lies another clue. Other people in the same habitat, be it an office, be it the tent, where when you have a bonfire in your tent or in your home when the squirrel blocks off the furnace outlet, they're affected more or less as well. The cherry kind of skin is something that is talked about in classic presentations. I would not 
rely on that to rule in a carbon monoxide poisoning. With the ABC's intubation and 100% oxygen ventilation is a start to uh, curing the patient, but of course it goes beyond that. Non-convulsive status is a tough diagnosis to make and often is made after a long list of other causes have been ruled out, like in this case. Let's say you've ruled out your long list of causes of coma and you suspect that the patient's coma is a pseudocoma, or in other words, a coma from a psychiatric problem. How do you distinguish clinically a pseudocoma from a true real coma? Great question, Dr. Hellman. And I think there are lots of pearls we've all picked up along the way. I think the most common pearl we pick up, at least I picked up early on in my training, was the whole lifting the arm above the head and dropping it, thinking that if someone's in a coma, their their arm is going to smack them in the head. Whereas if they're not in a coma or they're faking a coma, they might redirect their arm so it doesn't hit their head. That's kind of one way. The other thing is looking for a like a doll's eye phenomenon, so an avoidance of gaze. So when you lift up their eyelids, the patient will often not make eye contact with you and their pupils will go up with their eyelids. Things that you don't want to do is, I don't think this is your opportunity to sharpen your knuckles and to torture these patients and to see how sternally rubbing you can do to make them suffer. 37% of people don't have a gag reflex, so don't think that sticking your, your tongue depressor in their throat or an NG tube down is going to give you that clue. The other thing is, this might be the time to do a really good neuro exam. We often make the mistake of thinking a neuro exam is a CT head. This is the time to do the fancy neurologic tricks. So think about checking for brainstem reflexes. People, as I alluded to, might not have a gag reflex, but everyone has cold chlorics. And if you have to go to that route, putting ice water into someone's ears is a, a way that there is no way of faking a cause of a coma. And I think when you get to the point that you've kind of tried verbal de-escalation, you've tried the eyelids, you've tried the arm, if these people aren't waking up, you got to determine there's a good likelihood that this person has something organically wrong with them. You need advanced neuroimaging, do your brain stem reflexes, you put cold water into their ears and nothing goes on with their eyes, you can be pretty certain that that person has a structural cause of a coma. Dr. Carr just described for us how to determine whether someone is having a pseudocoma versus a true coma. Dr. Steinhardt's now going to talk a little bit about how to distinguish a pseudo-seizure from a true seizure. More often than not, the motor performance that you're witnessing defies any anatomic cause. It's just like an academy performance, more often than not. And, and, and now I'm alluding to... Yes, there are subtleties. I already, we talked about the old lady with the psychomotor seizure and the lip smacking and the automatisms. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about choreiform movements and hemibolismus and all these other movement disorders that are real and pathological and can make you think psychomotor seizure. I'm talking about gross theatrics which the ambulance attendants and all the other staff people say this, this, this has got to be a performance. There, there's no central structural cause for this. But that's not always the case. It, it is also, I think, fascinating how much of a challenge this can be. We always hear about prolactin levels. Most people don't have access to prolactin levels at any time, uh, let alone on off hours. Suffice it to say... For any grand mal seizure, 
or complex partial status seizure, a prolactin level taken within 20 minutes of the fit will be positive. And if it's not, it doesn't fall into either of those categories. So something to keep in mind in the desperate situation. The last pseudo season patient I had, I said, look, I just want to talk to you. If you can just stop season for like five minutes and you can go back to season right after. And that was more effective than the lorazepam I would have gave you. But the other thing is, if you give lorazepam and it, res- it starts to work in a, an eighth of a second, you know that person's well. And you know that person's faking. So the response to the lorazepam would be too prompt. And the other thing is, you expect a postictal period. So if someone's having seizures and then you get them to stop and then all of a sudden they're perfectly normal and we're not talking non-convulsive status, you start to wonder, are these seizures real? And now for a short comedic interlude. Hello ma'am, welcome to Parkland Hospital. I will be your doctor today. What is your emergency? What? 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 Emergency? Yes, you are in the Parkland Emergency Department. What emergency can I help you with? Well, I just had a seizure. I may have another one any second now. Do you have a seizure history? Are you taking medicines for seizures? Do you have a seizure doctor? I just had a seizure. Wow, that was a bad one. I have seizure pain. I have pain from the seizure. Ma'am, that was not a seizure. That was a dance move. I really don't think this is a seizure. My seizure medicine is Xanax, and I am out. Aren't you going to give me any Xanax? I take Xanax. No, because that wasn't a seizure, and Xanax is not a seizure medicine. You know, I was in a car accident four years ago. It was a bad car accident. I was on the way to help my grandmother who was dying of cancer. Now I have back pain and seizures. Ma'am, I'm not going to give you Xanax because that wasn't a seizure and Xanax is for anxiety. Tell me what is making you anxious? I am anxious that I may not get any Xanax. Let's move on to our second case. This is a case of a 70-year-old man who presents to your ED by ambulance after being found down on the floor next to his bed in his apartment in wintertime by his daughter. He was last seen by his daughter the day prior when she noticed that he was a bit confused and very moody. He has a past medical history of diabetes, hypertension, and elevated lipids and takes ASA, Altase, Gliburide, and Lipitor. EMS found the patient on the floor with a GCS of 10, agitated and dysphasic. There were no empty pill bottles found. On exam, in the ED, his abnormal vital signs were a heart rate of 122 and a temp of 38.7, with a normal blood pressure, normal respiratory rate, and normal O2 sat. His blood sugar was 15, which for our American listeners is moderately high. His GCS is 7 at this point, and he seems to be maintaining a patent airway. He appears flushed, and his skin is warm to touch, with no rashes or skin ulcers. His ENT, CVS, chest, and abdo exam are normal. He has no apparent goiter. Before I reveal the neuro exam, I just want to put a plug in at this point for the importance of a really good neuro exam in the comatose patient in the ED. We referred to this a bit earlier. You know, in the, in the era of CT scanning, just about everyone who's comatose, we have to remember that the yield of a good history and physical 
are much higher than the yield of a, of a CT scan. And that this has been borne out in the literature as well. So with the knowledge that the neuro exam is of paramount importance in the comatose patient in general, how do you approach the neurological exam for a patient in the emergency department? Several components of the neuro exam need to be assessed in the comatose patient. As I said, the hallmark of the neurological exam is looking at the eyes. There is so much information. Metabolic causes of coma rarely affect the pupils. You might, with the exceptions of an opioid overdose or some of the toxicologic, you will not have unequal pupils or you will not have unequal extraocular movements or alterations in that from a metabolic cause. So any inequality of pupils or extraocular movement, think about a structural cause. When I think about the neuro exam, looking at the eyes, I'm looking at extraocular movements, I'm looking at the pupils and I'm looking at the fundi. An under-recognized thing in the comatose patient is something called Tursen syndrome. 13% of patients with a subarachnoid hemorrhage will present with retinal hemorrhages. So they will have, say, they were unconscious, you look in their fundi, there's retinal hemorrhages, that person's going to be a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Think about brainstem testing, whether this is the time to do some fancy doll's eyes, cold calorics. You want to get a sense of the GCS and a sense of their motor exam as well. And then lastly, in patients who are comatose, a, a state of their breathing. So their respiratory rate as well. Are these people chains, stoking, GCS, respiratory exam, brainstem reflexes, eyes, pupils, and extraocular movements. And I would add, looking for asymmetry, upgoing toes is critical. The dirty way uh, to check less specific but certainly informative is for clonus, ankle clonus. If you find that, especially in one limb and not the other, in a Hoffman sign, so that's the equivalent of a Babinski in the fingers, asymmetry of these cortical spinal tract tests is pathognomonic for a one-sided lesion. I agree with Dr. Carr, of course, fundi are critical in evaluating the problem is in in certain noxious presentations vomiting agitation you may not be able to get the cooperation to use a, a fundoscope the quick and dirty way might be ultrasound if you're looking for papilledema not hyaloid hemorrhage as was mentioned but papilledema is easy to see with ultrasound technique, if you know what you're looking for. And lastly, the blessing and the curse of meningismus. We have an older individual here who's probably full of arthritis, may or may not have limitations in cervical spinal movement from that. But if you could elicit meningismus, it's highly informative. The lack of meningismus means nothing. In terms of increased intracranial pressure, the clue might be the vitals. Right? They might have a Cushing's reflex. The other thing is papilledema does take time to develop. So if someone has an acute brain process that they would have increased intracranial pressure and it develops immediately, if you look in their eyes, don't expect them to have papilledema. That's in contrast to the person who's had a brain tumor for a long time and then it bleeds, you're going to see papilledema. So increased ICP and papilledema, there is a lag. So getting back to the case, his neuro exam reveals mid-sized pupils equal and reactive, no eye deviation or nystagmus, and his fundi are normal, as far as you can tell. 
Doll's eye reflexes are intact. His neck is supple. His limb reflexes are normal throughout. Power and sensation are difficult to assess because of his decreased LOA. Babinski reflexes are upgoing bilaterally. Tone is normal. The patient successfully intubated with Atomidate and sucks. He's given two grams of IV ceftriaxone and a liter bolus of normal saline, and a septic workup is initiated. Lab work abnormalities are a glucose of 17, which is moderately high, white blood cell count of 20, and a lactate of 3. His tox screen is negative. The chest x-ray shows no infiltrate, and the urinalysis is negative. The CT head is read by the ED doc as negative. So here we've got a patient who has an elevated temp and an altered mental status. Can you just review for us your differential of a patient who has an elevated temperature and altered mental status? Hyperthermia and altered mental status. It's a bit of a seasonal thing. So clearly in the summertime after the Toronto Marathon or on a hot day, you want to think about heat exhaustion and heat stroke. Think about some toxicological things, such as a sympathomimetic overdose, an anticholinergic overdose, and then more specifically, thinking about things like a serotonin syndrome, a neuroleptic malignant symptom, malignant hypothermia, and then always endocrinopathies like thyroid storm. Those are kind of the things I think about in terms of fever and altered mental status that are not obviously infectious. Yeah, I think I would add withdrawal syndromes to that. Alcohol withdrawal syndrome, GHB withdrawal. Heat stroke doesn't have to be the marathon runner. More often than not, in our inner city population, we see, the again, the psychiatric uh, patient who is on neuroleptics that can alter the thermal regulation in of itself. These patients often have three or four layers on. We see heat stroke routinely in in our inner city psychiatric population. Getting back to the case, when you go and reassess the patient, he suddenly starts to seize. He's given two milligrams of IV lorazepam, which stops his seizure. An LP is done, and the CSF analysis shows 180 white cells with a mononuclear pleocytosis of 150. There's 200 RBCs, the protein is elevated at 110, and the glucose is normal. Based on the agitated behavior, the seizure, and the CSF analysis, a presumptive diagnosis of herpes encephalitis is made, and the patient's given a gram of IVA cyclovir. So let's talk a little bit about typical bacterial meningitis. First, how good are the classic findings of fever, nuchal rigidity, alter mental status, and headache in helping to correctly diagnose meningitis? I, I think altogether you could rule in bacterial meningitis. And if you don't have any of them, you could rule it out. I think by and large in your normal run-of-the-mill patient who presents, we're not talking immunocompromised, we're not talking intoxicated, we're not talking confounders here. The immunocompromised, the list is long. HIV, of course, is front and foremost. Uh, The asplenic, the patient on chemotherapeutic agents, including immunosuppressive agents for transplants, etc., where you don't have to have fever, nuchal rigidity. But the giveaway here is typically some alteration in behavior, in personality. They're, they're just, they could still be 15 out of 15 GS 
classical coma skill, but the, the loved one, the significant other saying, you know, he's just not acting right. He's pouring uh, water on a cereal instead of milk or something that just is out of line that, that you, just heightens your suspicion. It's a big red flag. We have to watch it because now patients present already on antibiotics, and so they may be partially treated because they have a sinus infection or uh, the patient treated for an otitis media who represents with worse horrible headache and or vomiting. It's not the otitis media that's gone bad. It's the fact that it's spread into the juxtaposed brain and you've got either a subdural empyema or meningitis, right? That is still the, the most common causes of an antecedent infection leading to, to meningitis is paranasal infection. The other groups you have to think about is we're all taught about looking for rashes. One, meningococcemia, not that common, and also classically presents without fever. The sickest patient I ever saw was a meningococcemia patient who had a no white count, no fever, and a lactate of 12. So you see the rash, but no fever, no white count doesn't not mean infection. I think the flip side of that, again, sadly overlooked, is the leukopenia presentation and the knee-jerk reflex of a white count of 2.7 or so is, oh, it's, it's virus. There's a virus going on here when, in fact, several bacterial presentations, the hallmark being pneumococcal, overwhelming pneumococcal sepsis just consumes all the white cells, including the demarginated white cells. And what's left after this consumption is a white count of 2.3. They're all neutrophils. They're not lymphocytes. For the physical examination in someone who's suspected of having meningitis, which physical exam signs are the most predictive of bacterial meningitis? Do you use Kernig's and Brzezinski's sign, do you find them useful at all? Look, I can't even remember which is which. I think for that reason, the jolt extenuation test has made my life very simple. It's easy to do. I don't have to remember which is which. There's one study, the JAMA Rational Clinical Series. There was a study that looked at about 54 patients. You take someone's head, you turn it a couple times in a second, and if it worsens their pain, suggestive of meningismus or a meningitic process, I tend to use that to replace my Koenig's and Brzezinski's test. Okay, so Koenig's and Brzezinski's have very, very low sensitivity, and the, the best physical exam maneuver for ruling in bacterial meningitis is the jolt accentuation test. I, I agree. Again, we deal with patients. Patients have their own personalities. That includes pain sensitivities, and you're going to overcall meningitis with jolt accentuation sign, but the, the lack of a positive finding is supportive of no bacterial meningitis. And of course, in the average St. Mike's patient, they not only have an infection, but they also have trauma and a psychiatric diagnosis. So moving their head back and forth might not be a good idea because they might have a C-sign fracture as well or something. That's a very important pearl for the coma patient, which is don't assume the found down person didn't break their neck and has a high C-sign fracture. And think about ABCs. Think about protecting the C-spine. This patient turned out to have herpes encephalitis. What clues in the presentation would trigger you to pursue and treat for an HSV encephalitis? I think the hallmark of herpes encephalitis is a really pronounced alteration in their mental status. These alterations may be 
cognitive deficits, they may be psychiatric things, they often have seizures or other movement disorders. But where you'll see HSV is that alteration and they might have classic findings on their neuroimaging in their CT scan. You might see small hemorrhages in their temporal lobes. But this is a really hard disorder to recognize and they say that up to 30% of eMERGE docs don't recognize this and don't start antivirals prudently. The main reason for that is most clinicians would expect to see cutaneous lesions as part of this presentation, but the, the fact is that these viruses are thought to dwell in the nerve fibers and track proximally then through typically periorbital kind of paranasally and track typically up through the olfactory nerve proximally through the cribriform plate and what's what's lying next to the cribriform plate is the temporal lobes and that's why it's thought you get predilection to uh, invasion of the temporal lobes and the findings that you see one third of the time on CT. I don't. I don't see them, by the way. But the neuroradiologist, I hope, would. And over two thirds of the time, were an MR to be taken. But do not expect and wait for cutaneous lesions, be them perioral cold sores for HSV one, nor the much less common HSV two kind of genital labial herpetic lesions to be present to rule in HSV meningoencephalitis, you will miss all of them. They're not related to cutaneous eruption. Okay. So that being said, for patients who you suspect of having bacterial meningitis, but you can't really tell they might have herpes encephalitis, do you routinely cover all your patients with acyclovir who you're working up for bacterial meningitis? You alluded to this patient having a significant red cell count with the significant but not overwhelming white cell count. The white cells are almost always mononuclear. And, and it makes sense that there are red cells there because of the inflammation of the temporal lobes and the shedding into the CSF, as opposed to most other common etiologies. And it's usually a younger age group. Okay. So Dr. Steinhardt, do you usually cover with a couple grams of ceftriaxone and whatever other antibiotics, which we'll, we'll talk about later, for your suspected bacterial meningitis, and then you wait for the LP before you might add acyclovir? Yes. I, yeah. I, I don't automatically add acyclovir. It, it depends on who I'm dealing with and the results of the LP and the CT. Okay. And Dr. Carr? I would agree with Dr. Steiner. I don't routinely start it empirically. Okay. I mean, unless if the patient presents with a very psychiatric presentation with the fever and the, the neck stiffness and all the rest, would you start acyclovir in that case? You'd be a little more cognizant. There, there's really, let's face it, very little harm in, in giving acyclovir IV. I think if you thought twice about it, time to give the acyclovir. Look, we don't need to be ID docs. ID docs are wonderful when they get all the blood cultures back and they get to pick what antibiotic to use based on sensitivities. This isn't the time to overthink and be super smart. Go big. You know, you're worried about someone, you, you've created a picture that's concerning with the neuropsych stuff, give it. The worst thing that can happen is someone got an unnecessary dose of acyclovir. I, I should say that in this day and age, uh, PCR testing is routine in most centers and you can get 
a negative PCR, which is highly accurate for this entity, HSV, in five hours. So from the time they get the CSF sample to running it, uh, if it's going to be negative, they could tell you that in five hours. A little longer if it's positive because they have to add some other things, but eight hours for a positive test. The key is giving the lab ample amounts of CSF fluid. You don't give enough fluid, they can't do the PCR. When it comes to LPs, you know, both patients and docs don't really enjoy doing LPs. And there was a clinical prediction rule for bacterial meningitis in the Alice of Emergency Medicine in 2007 that contains some criteria like altered mental status, meningeal irritation, petechiae, vomiting, and they, they claimed that it could help you decide whether or not to do an LP. Do you find clinical prediction rules like this one useful when you're deciding whether or not to do an LP? There is evidence to show that physician judgment in predicting meningitis is pretty good too, using CSF as the gold standard. So I think we're really good. And I think what we need to do is have awareness of where this disease exists and how the patterns and the spectrums of where it exists. I don't do CRPs in this decision tree that they've come across. It's not something I use, but I use good clinical gestalt. The classic teaching is that patients suspected of bacterial meningitis should have a CT head done before doing an LP to identify those patients who might herniate from doing an LP. The major concern is that doing a CT will delay the LP, which might render the LP less accurate because of the increased time that antibiotics are, are on board before the CSF is analyzed. Should we be CTing everyone before LP? Should we be CT CTing only those who we suspect have raised ICP? Or do we have to bother at all with the CT? I think we're probably doing too many CTs. I think that one, it often delays antibiotics. It causes radiation. And we also know that for the most part, unless someone has papilledema and clinical, real clinical focal abnormalities, an LP is probably not going to make them herniate. I think you need to reserve CT before LP when it's truly justified. I think these fits into several high-risk groups. The groups that I like to think about are, are people who I will CT before LP, who people who start off with seizing, people who have focal neurological deficits, people who are older age, people who are immunocompromised, clearly the transplants, the asplenic, the HIV populations, these are groups that might be more likely to have a cerebral abscess. Maybe they've had a fever for two weeks and they come in altered. And lastly, anyone with a malignancy or something like that. So I think we over CT, you really, for most patients, especially in the pediatric population that were suspecting meningitis, healthy people generally, you can LP before CT. Having reviewed this a uh, little while ago, it's much akin, there are parallels here with treating atrial fibrillation. You don't know if they were going to stop because most atrial fibs that present do stop within six, eight hours of presentation to the emerge, or whether it was the poisonous drug that we give. Likewise, a lot of people with meningoencephalitis will herniate, whether it was because of your LP or they were going to herniate anyway. I think the bottom line is not available at this time.
So Dr. Steinhardt, what are your indications for CT before LP? I will answer that, but I'd like to just throw a broader net. We will treat this patient for meningoencephalitis, whether we're waiting for a CT or not. We will do blood cultures on these patients that will capture 80% of the time the etiologic agent. If they do have this pussy urine on presentation, we will have the the etiologic agent with sampling other cultures from other parts of the body. We would like academically to prove or disprove meningoencephalitis. And the problem, of course, with waiting is the longer you wait, the less positive the CSF will be. Cutoffs from two to four hours, depending on the severity of the presentation and the type and dose of medication that you give. But we would, if it's meningoencephalitis, we would like to get a positive analysis on culture and or gram stain. And therein lies the reticence of delaying the LP for the CT. So that's the background information. I think that's, that's a controversy that exists. And having started my practice before CT being readily available and not hesitating to do lumbar punctures in patients who had <laughs> focal uh, hypertensive presentations and the normal run-of-the-mill, uh, no focal presentations, and I got away with dozens and dozens of, of them. My experience is that doing the CT is superfluous. It gives you information, but it had never stopped me from doing an LP. And so it's more often a confounder than something that helps us. So for the question of who to do a CT on before the LP in patients with suspected bacterial meningitis, the textbooks say for patients who have a focal finding, papilledema, who are comatose, have had a seizure, are immunocompromised, or have malignancy. However, this is very controversial since there's no evidence that doing the LP on patients with even known raised intracranial pressure will cause brain herniation or any other problems. So the jury is still out. Next, Dr. Carr is going to talk about when we should be giving antibiotics for patients with suspected bacterial meningitis. You're certain this person has meningitis, you're highly suspicious, you're not doing a CT, do the LP, give the antibiotics, same time. It's when you have that delay, when you're going to do the CT, maybe do the blood cultures first, then give the antibiotics, go to CT, and then come back with an LP as soon after. If you're going to wait for that person, do everything you can to minimize that wait. So if you're sending that person to this CT scanner, you're following that person. You're calling ahead of time the radiology people saying, I'm sending this person like an acute stroke. This person is going for CT right now, and I'm going to prudently bring this person back. I'm going to watch him or her arrive. I'm going to have the resident or the staff look at the film, or I'm going to look at the film so that I can get on my LP. I think we need to be smart about it on both ends, whether giving antibiotics upstream or when they come back from CT, fine, there's nothing to see, time to go after that LP. Right. And even if for some reason the LP is delayed significantly after you give the antibiotics, you mentioned before there's PCR that can often recover that bacterial agent despite antibiotics being on board. You're not going to get a normal CSF analysis from delaying LP. You're not going to miss it. You may have to think twice and work harder at getting the etiologic agent, but you, you will not call it normal. Well put. 
Next, we're going to talk a little bit about the CSF findings in bacterial meningitis. The typical textbook CSF findings for bacterial meningitis are an opening pressure of greater than 300, white blood cells of greater than 1,000, PMNs of greater than 80%, and protein of greater than 200. The typical CSF findings for viral CNS infections include white blood cell counts fewer than 300, less than 20% of which are neutrophils, and a normal protein and glucose level. As you'll hear in the following discussion, these textbook numbers have to be interpreted with extreme caution. In HSV encephalitis, you get temporal lobe hemorrhage, edema, and necrosis with inflammation, which can give you increased CSF red blood cells, like in this case. So if you see RBCs in a patient who you suspect of bacterial meningitis, rather than assume it was a traumatic tap, assume that the patient has herpes encephalitis. So there have been a few prediction rules in kids in particular based on CSF findings of whether this could be viral or bacterial meningitis. What kind of cautionary pearls can you tell our listeners about these prediction rules? Firstly, when CSF is obtained early, the results are often backwards. So in acute bacterial meningitis very early, you might see a lymphocyte predominance early on. And much like an encephalitis, you might see an early polymorphic predominance. So you can't always hang your hat in the early presenters. The other thing is certain subgroups don't mount a CSF pleocytosis. The HIV population, especially with low CD4 counts, you might not get WBCs in the CSF. And it's why it's paramount to do an opening pressure because an elevated opening pressure might be your clue to a cryptococcal cause of this patient's meningitis before you have the India Inc. analysis of their cryptococcal antigen. So I think using things like that are important and not relying on the classic CSF cutoffs. The other thing is patients are often partially treated. They got sepsil at the walk-in clinic three days ago for this fever they had. Their results are blunted. I think that when you get your results, if you're uncertain, over-treat. We're not talking about missing sinusitis. We're talking about missing meningitis. And if there's things that concern you, I think over-treating and waiting for gram stains and PCR results are prudent. If I think it's a viral meningitis, then I am obliged to think this can also be something really weird, especially with my inner city population. And I would LP everybody I think has any kind of meningitis because I need that culture. Having been burned a couple of times sending home, quote, viral meningitis, I would LP everybody and any positive LP I would consult before sending home a, quote, viral meningitis. A word about opening pressure. Most clinicians do not do opening pressures. Why? Because the apparatus that you have to use is straight out of the dark ages. And most of us do these procedures unaided. I think opening pressure is invaluable, as stated, and I think for those who will go on now to get opening pressure in a recumbent patient, it behooves them then to practice fiddling with the three-way stopcock and the two-part 
graduated cylinders that are that, that are used to measure it and to collect the CSF that is then drawn up into these cylinders to get the opening pressure, I would not discard that for every reason. You want your tube one to be the fresh sample from the, from the puncture, not after this stuff has dribbled all over the towels and the floor. And of course, highly, highly infectious fluid that you, you just don't want that to happen. So yes, opening pressure should be used, not just to rule in meningitis, and subarachnoid, but it's a great way to pick up sinus thrombosis and pseudotumor cerebri. Not common, but not rare. It's huge opening pressures in an otherwise benign CSF analysis. And the only way I will pick it up is with opening pressure. I can't read those subtle findings on CT and I would otherwise send home a patient without that opening pressure. But I behoove people who are going to initiate opening pressure assessment to, to practice handling all these bits and parts. Dr. Carr, besides the usual CSF tests that we send off for, are there any additional CSF tests that can help distinguish viral meningitis from bacterial meningitis? There are lots of tests that are discussed in the literature, and I think a lot of these tests tend to be sensitive and not specific. Some of the tests I'm referring to, and often I'm not even sure what my lab or the lab of our listeners have the ability to process. Things like serum procalcitonin, things like CSF lactate. I think Dr. Starnard's point about getting viral PCR done early is probably the most useful of all those other markers. The other curious test would be a latex agglutination test, which maybe has some validity in patients who would be partially treated. That would be the only thing I'd say. These other tests, they often are positive in people with bacterial meningitis, but they're not very specific. And there's plenty of other things that cause them to be elevated. I would add in, in, in our setting, you don't even have to order it, but a fluorescent stain for you know, mycobacterium tuberculosis is, is standard procedure. And it's a seasonal thing too, right? If we're in the midst of a West Nile pandemic or something like that, like we had several years past, if I'm going to send serum and I'm already doing an LP, I might send off West Nile serology or anything else that's related to the patient's travel or other experiences. There's been much debate over the use of steroids in the treatment of suspected community-acquired bacterial meningitis. Some papers say they decrease mortality. Others say they reduce the chance of hearing loss. Some say there's a difference between adults and kids. It's all very confusing. What's your take on giving a dose, 10 milligrams of IV dexamethasone for suspected bacterial meningitis? You know, if we were dealing with function of, of a finger, I'd say, okay, you know, why give a drug that might increase flexion by 10%? We're dealing here with brain power and anything that improves or can improve any degree of functional outcome is important. And on the one side, I don't think there's any downside to giving Decadron. That's certainly been proven that there is no downside to Decadron. And there's ample evidence that it might improve to some or more than some degree functional outcome. As a positive side, I would say, let's, let's give it. And currently the dogma is to give it within 15 minutes or so of your first antibiotic dose preceding it or at the time of the first antibiotic dose. Yes. Look, 
it's rare that I'll kind of say steroids are good. We find that steroids get a bad rap for just about everything and probably deserving so. This might be the area that I think steroids are really good for. A lot of the literature that contradicts some of the known studies in Cockroom Review are on populations in Sub-Saharan Africa or Vietnam. Most of us don't work in populations where this population is entirely different. So I think given dexamethasone for sure and definitely at that time or before if possible is the way to go. Sounds like the evidence is stronger in adults, maybe with NNTs with respect to mortalities of 5 to 10, but in the pediatric populations, I still would recommend giving it. What's more interesting is, even though the literature is not as rich, do you give it in the suspected viral encephalitis? My short answer would be yes, but it's not as evidence-based as it's in the bacterial group. There was a big Cochrane review in 2007 said, yes, number needed to treat is 9, let's give DEX. Uh, and everyone was doing it, and then suddenly this article came out just last year, and then everyone starts to question it again. But the bottom line for you guys is probably a different population. You're still going to give it. I think the, the bottom line for anybody for any study is never be swayed by one study. Okay, so we've made some reference to a few of the bugs that we can find in bacterial meningitis and giving ceftriaxone. Can you just run us through what the typical bugs are? and when you'd give what antibiotics for suspected bacterial meningitis? Meningitis is a different beast now. Vaccinations that our children and are receiving has changed this disease dramatically. The average age has changed to now with strep pneumo about 39. So it's much different when we were practicing or practice was 20 years ago. Strep pneumo is still number one. Things like H influenza and Neisseria are still up there. Think about the special populations with listeria being the elderly patients, the alcoholic patients, and the pregnant patients. And, and then think about other bacteria like mycoplasma and some of the viral meningitis is that have to be considered. So everyone knows to give ceftriaxone, 2 grams IV. What other antibiotics are you giving for which bugs? So again, with my population being inner city, less so in, in the community, MRSA is still out there. Not common to get systemic sepsis with MRSA. Ceftriaxone, ampicillin, acyclovir, any of the other drugs will not touch MRSA. So it's knee-jerk reflex where I work to include vancomycin in any septic patient, in particular the meningoencephalitis, until differentiation occurs. Okay, so we're giving two grams of ceftriaxone, we're giving a gram of vancomycin, we're giving ampicillin, two grams to patients with AIDS or alcoholism or any immunocompromised state, and that's to cover listeria, and acyclovir in those patients who we suspect might have herpes encephalitis, or once we've done the LP and we have some more clues that it might be herpes encephalitis to give it then. When a patient in the ED is diagnosed with bacterial meningitis, I usually get a million requests from the nurses and respiratory therapists and EMS personnel and the desk clerks and their pets and everybody to get prophylactic antibiotics. Who should get 
antibiotic prophylaxis in terms of close contacts to patients with suspected bacterial meningitis? And what antibiotics and what dose do you recommend? Typically, this should be given for very close contacts, people who might have shared secretions, shared drinks, shared saliva and bodily fluids. What's the easiest drug is a single 500 milligram dose of Cipro is a one tablet. Historically, rifampin is two tablets dosed twice a day for two days. So Cipro, single dose, I can give them in the eMERGE. It's compliance is there. I think the bigger issue is the hysteria that comes with meningitis. It's really hard to look at someone and they think that public health has sent someone they know. So they're all in and say, you're not getting it. I tend to just give a single dose of Cipro unless it is really, really unnecessary for them to get it. Let's do a review of meningitis with the key points and some added pearls. First, when a patient presents with hyperthermia or fever and altered mental status, there's a few things you should be thinking out besides the usual infection. First, of course, there's heat stroke, which can often happen with patients, for example, who are on psychiatric medications and who are wearing multiple layers of clothing, who are street people, for example. You should also be thinking about some of the toxidromes, like an anticholinergic toxidrome, a sympathomimetic toxidrome, and the other less common medication-related syndromes like serotonin syndrome and neuroleptic malignant syndrome. Lastly, you should think also about some endocrinopathies like thyroid storm. In terms of bacterial meningitis, remember that jolt accentuation has the best positive predictive value of any of the physical examination findings for bacterial meningitis. In terms of the typical physical findings and history, everything pretty much goes out the door when it comes to immunocompromised and geriatric patients. They can often have very subtle presentations, and sometimes the only presenting sign of meningitis in these patients is an altered mental status. What about clues to suspecting herpes encephalitis? An alteration of consciousness occurs in virtually all patients with HSV encephalitis, and you should think of the diagnosis when patients have psychiatric symptoms, or like in our case, when patient has a seizure in the setting of suspected meningitis. One other thing that wasn't mentioned was that patients with herpes encephalitis can often present with dysarthria in addition to some of these other findings. If you think the patient has viral meningitis, that should trigger the question, could this be an acute primary HIV infection? since aseptic meningitis has been reported in about a quarter of cases of acute HIV infection. While the textbooks say that we should do a CT before LP for patients with a focal finding, papilledema, coma, seizure, immunocompromised state, or malignancy, this is based only on theory. And while you shouldn't go running to do an LP on a coning patient, the idea of having to do a CT prior to LP to rule out raised ICP is probably not as important as we used to think. What about when to give antibiotics? When bacterial meningitis is thought to be a likely diagnosis, antibiotics should be given just after an immediately performed LP, or if the LP will be delayed significantly, for example, if you need to wait for a CT scan, antibiotics should be started immediately after blood cultures are drawn, since a significant proportion of patients with meningitis will have positive blood cultures. And if necessary, you can send the CSF for PCR, which is accurate in identifying the bacterial etiology, even in the patient who has been on antibiotics for a few hours. What about analyzing the CSF fluid? You can have near normal CSF findings in bacterial meningitis. 
and you can have high neutrophils and viral meningitis. So don't use strict cutoffs of CSF findings to rule in or out bacterial meningitis. Almost all of these patients should be admitted and be especially careful if they are immunocompromised or elderly or have been on antibiotics recently. If you get an extremely high CSF white blood cell count, think of ruptured abscess or malignancy. And if you get an extremely high CSF protein, then the likely etiology is fungal. What about dexamethasone with antibiotics in suspected bacterial meningitis? Who might dexamethasone be beneficial in? The greatest benefit of dex is in patients with a GCS of less than 12 if given within an hour of antibiotics. I usually give it because no study has found any harm and several studies have shown improved mortality and preservation of hearing. In terms of antibiotics, give ceftriaxone 2 grams and vancomycin 1 gram. Consider ampicillin in patients with AIDS, alcoholism, or any immunocompromised state to cover listeria. And some will give a cyclovir 1 gram to everyone. You definitely want to give it if patients have psych symptoms, is altered, or who has a seizure. Next, we're going to go on to our third case. That marks the end of part one of this episode. Please go on to part two.